In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Jesus, Word of God, reveal more of yourself to us through your presence in the Bible. Led by the Holy Spirit, guide our time of reflection. May it increase our desire for you in the Scripture and in the sacrament. Amen. We've got a lot of ground to cover as we celebrate the Ascension this weekend, and we start with our first reading. It's the account of Jesus' Ascension in the Acts of the Apostles, and we hear it in all three years of the lectionary cycle. Now, there's definitely three episodes worth of content about the passage, so here I want to concentrate mainly on the character mentioned at the start of the excerpt. The author of Acts, which is the same as the author of the Gospel of Luke, starts by saying, In the first book, Theophilus, I dealt with all that Jesus did and taught. But just who is Theophilus? There's a couple different possibilities. Literally, Theophilus means lover of God, since Theo means God, and a file is one who loves. Sort of like how a Francophile loves France, an Anglophile loves England, and so on. So some believe that this Theophilus really didn't exist, and that the author just uses him as a generic placeholder for the average reader who would be a lover of God. But personally, I do believe that Theophilus existed and was a real person. After all, starting a piece of literature with a dedication was quite common at the time. The famous Jewish historian Josephus, who wrote The Jewish Antiquities, among other things, dedicated his work to a man named Epaphroditus. And so it's likely that Theophilus was actually a real person who had heard some things about Jesus but wanted to know more, and especially wanted to know what was true. And so we hear in the beginning of Luke's Gospel, which is really like part one to Acts of the Apostles, the author says, I, too, have decided to write it down in an orderly sequence for you, most excellent Theophilus. There are two options for our second reading at Mass, but since the selection from Paul's letter to the Ephesians is only able to be read during year B, we'll take a look at that excerpt. It's a long passage, and here Paul begins by describing the church's unity. Then he concludes by describing the diversity of gifts that Jesus has provided. But the middle is where we'll focus, since it concentrates on the ascension. There, St. Paul co-ops a part of Psalm 68 to describe Jesus' ascension. Now, Psalm 68 was originally written to celebrate God's victory over Gentile enemies, and specifically how God took captives, received tribute from them, and then bestowed blessings on his people. Paul takes this psalm, Psalm 68, and applies it to Jesus. It's what we hear in the passage. He ascended on high and took prisoners captive. He gave gifts to men. Who are the prisoners that Jesus is taking captive? There's a debate about it, but it's likely referring to those who had previously been captive by sin and its effects. He's taking captive those who had been captive by principalities and powers. He's liberating the captives. And this fits best with the original context of the psalm, which spoke of summoning the conquered Gentiles to praise the Lord and confess the power of God. There's also a debate about the line in our second reading when St. Paul says the following. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? Some people see the mention of the lower regions of the earth as St. Paul referring to Jesus' descent into hell immediately following the crucifixion. And while this is possible, taking on a first century understanding of the world's cosmological layout helps us to better comprehend what Paul is getting at. Going all the way back to Genesis 1, when God created He created a dome in the sky to separate the water above the heavens from the water below the earth. And so, if the sky is a dome, the lower regions of this dome would be the earth, that is, the ground. 
And so when St. Paul speaks of descending into the lower regions of the earth, he's likely describing Jesus' incarnation. Our gospel raises for us a very famous question. Just how did Mark originally end his gospel? Chances are, if you take out your Bible at home, you'll see some footnotes and notations at the end of Mark's gospel, because, believe it or not, scholars just aren't sure exactly how Mark's gospel was meant to end. Our passage for the gospel this weekend is referred to as the long ending, because it is sort of like a compendium of resurrection appearances. Yet the language and style of these final verses, verses 9 through 20, differ tremendously from the rest of Mark's gospel. It's sort of like a teacher who can suddenly see when a student has plagiarized his work because the vocabulary and tone suddenly change. Now, if there's a long ending to Mark, you probably guess that there's a short ending as well. But neither of these endings, both the long and the short, are found in the most reliable and most ancient copies of the scripture that have been found. More than likely, Mark's gospel originally ended at verse 8, when the women left the tomb on Easter Sunday, fearful that Jesus had risen. As the gospel was told through the centuries and eventually written down, people naturally must have added on a sort of epilogue to close out the original story and share what had happened after Easter Sunday. So that's it. That's your Sunday setup for this solemnity of the ascension of the Lord in year B. May this knowledge of the story behind the scripture allow you to encounter Jesus Christ in a new way this weekend. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.